Kia ora and hello everyone. I'm Evie O'Brien and I have the honour and privilege of being the Interim Executive Director at Atlantic Institute. On behalf of Rose Trust, Atlantic Institute, our Fellowship of Fellowship Partner Organisations, the Obama Fellows, the Schmidt Science Fellows, it's my huge honour and privilege to welcome you all to the second webinar and conversation in a series focused on reimagining a new world post-COVID-19. Thank you for honouring this ecosystem of leaders with your presence and participation today. Our series intentionally uses the word new with K in brackets to acknowledge that each and every one of us brings resilience, solutions from known experiences of our own or of our ancestors. The world has been here before and one of the roles of leaders is to remember. To this end, I respectfully ask that we all take a few seconds to remember those across the world who have lost their lives to this disease, well before their time for many of them, including those in recent days where there has been a surge in South America, affecting many people, young and old, including Indigenous groups in the Amazon. They are all someone's mother, father, sister, brother, grandparent, and sadly, more recently, someone's child. So if we could just take a few seconds to remember those who have lost their lives. Thank you. It's my pleasure to now introduce you to our moderator, Dakani Ayubi, who is an Atlantic Fellow for Social Equity based at the University of Melbourne. And Dakani is joining us from Adelaide in Australia. She is a writer, author, and a food critic and culturalist, and I'll hand it over to you, Dakani. Thank you. Thank you, Evie. It's with a deep sense of gratitude that I hold and share this space with all of you, our participants, as we examine and interrogate the question of leadership, particularly the role of leadership in our time of crisis. Each of us arrives in this space with the weight of our own respective histories behind us. As an Afghan-born refugee, I would say that the COVID-19 pandemic has found us in a world in many ways already in crisis, a world deeply wounded and where the dignity and self-determination of many is undermined by visions of power and leadership that have normalised authoritarianism and that have weaponized our human vulnerabilities. But we have arrived, as we all know, at a monumental moment where in an elevated state of crisis, Many of the previously apparently unmovable norms are now in rapid flux. In determining where things fall, whether our world prevails as more unified or more fractured, the role of leadership is critical. And in this moment, the flower of questioning the possibilities of extending the potentialities of what leadership could and should look like is in full bloom. We are here to elicit the inner fragrance of this bloom and to revel in the sense it might reveal. In a webinar series that is imploring us, as Evie has outlined, to remember all of ourselves that has long been carved out, to retrace this and along with it the knowledge that is already deeply held within us, we are being invited to imagine so that we may action into being a world that reflects our inner multitudes where all dividing horizons are shattered. So I'd like to begin our panel discussion where our speakers have been asked to answer the question, what has COVID-19 taught us about leadership and solidarity in a time of crisis? First, I'd like to warmly welcome Tonya Cole, 
Tonya Cole is an alumnus of the University of Lagos and Harvard Business School and is currently part of the Transformational Leadership Fellowship Program at the Blavatnik School of Government in Oxford. He is the co-founder and former executive director of Sahara Group, an energy conglomerate with operations spanning the entire energy chain in Nigeria and neighboring West African countries through to East Africa and beyond. Amongst his many accolades and areas of contribution, Tonye has helped to generate a number of initiatives aimed at empowering youth through Africa to rise as the emerging leaders that will generate change. Please, Tonye, over to you. Thank you very much. Well, good day, ladies and gentlemen from all over the world. A very special thank you to the Atlantic Fellows and the Institute for putting this together, especially Evie, Tanya. Thank you for following up. Thank you for making this happen. And most especially, thank you for inviting me to give a keynote today. So I've been giving all of five minutes a very, very long time to talk about the entire change of leadership in the world. But bearing the unfortunate high number of deaths that have occurred during this pandemic, I'll be able to say that the world really, really needed a truly global shutdown to expose the real nature of leadership that exists in the world today. You see, for the first time in modern history, I think we can look at the entire world in a test tube and analyze just how far the human beings in power behave under stress and to see whether or not anything bigger can come out of this. Have they been prepared for it? Did they say it? Will they know it? Now we get to see who did well and who did not. We saw the best and the worst of human behavior, and we continue to see that in this crisis. It's left many world leaders who would usually have so much to say, who would have an answer for everything under the sun, suddenly looking very rattled and incomprehensible and making statements that we don't understand where a simple, I don't have the answer would have survived. Now we're all sure and we're certain that we've come into a crisis like no other. It's been one that no one has seen, but that has also and should have given the world a big opportunity to make changes that we have not seen before. And I believe that's what's going to happen. You see, the true meaning of collaboration and service for the global good suddenly came into sharp focus for me. Because nations that have talked for a long time about the power of globalization, about the need to spread development across the world, suddenly became very insular. All of a sudden, we saw a self-preservation instinct of man kicking in. And it's the thought that when it did kick in, nations began to deny exporting life-saving medical equipment to other nations until they themselves were covered. We saw nations become selfish. We saw leaders become insular. We saw places where the need for collaboration at a global level disappeared and everybody seemed to just think about me first. Now, that might have been excusable in another world, but probably not in the context of where we stand today. I heard examples of simple things like ventilators that had been leased into certain African nations. But because they had been leased by U.S. conglomerates, they were instructed to bring back those ventilators into the U.S. and taking them out of very critical care in some African countries. Now, that is not excusable. I saw issues where we went out of our way trying to secure PCR machines, testing machines, 
at a time when everyone was needing to test, all of a sudden export quotas came into play and you just could not get your hands on anything. And there are quotas that were applied to which nations would get first. Now that generally put many nations into danger. Now we're seeing in some South American countries, the later spread of the disease when maybe an earlier solution might have been applied. I got examples of where certain foreign embassies in Nigeria, for example, were told not to process or assist anyone looking for medical supplies from certain countries until the pandemic had eased in their home countries. Now, those are examples of very, very selfish, self-centered instincts that might have come from the global pandemic. But at the same time, in all of that sadness, we also saw the death of human endeavor showing up. While nations were emphasizing the pandemic, I saw people at a very ordinary level go beyond anything that could have been asked of them to express collaboration at very, very great levels. I saw people go out of their way to feed each other. I saw people go out of their way to purchase whatever they could to make sure that this is not spread within their borders. I saw people go out of their way to offer as basic things as money to keep going. I saw people who worked in need and collaborative effort at a grassroots level where governments had failed to do what they needed to do. So this leads me to leave us with a question. And the questions begin with the leaders that we had were driven by fear, while the generosity that led to collaboration of the people was driven by hope. The question to ask ourselves is how do we diminish at the global leadership level of government the selfish reaction that fear illustrates and encourage the collaborative endeavors that is born of hope? Second question, what would COVID-19 bequeath this world? A world governed by hope or one driven by fear? Which is a better model for the world? Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Tonye. Uh, really thought-provoking opening comments for us and really valuable to hear your perspective from what's happening throughout Africa as well. So much of the conversation seems to be in the Western context. What I heard strongly, apart from your really pertinent question about whether we let fear or hope rule, is about the limits of globalisation suddenly we've bound its borders. <laughs> Kindness and hope has boundaries. So thank you, Tonya. I would like to invite our second speaker, Cedric Brown, to please provide us with his opening comments. By way of introduction, Cedric Brown is the Chief Foundation Officer of the Kapoor Centre, an Oakland, California-based organisation building a more inclusive tech sector. Cedric has built a 25-year career of rich and varied leadership achievements, mostly dedicated to ensuring pathways to opportunities for people of colour. Cedric co-created Brothers Code, the College-Bound Brotherhood, the Oakland Startup Network, and the Black Funders Network of the Bay Area in the United States. He is also a published author, a creative artist, and the founder of the Jacobs Jones Literary Prize. He is proud to have completed his year as an Atlantic Fellow for Racial Equity and looks forward to his service as a senior fellow. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks, Cedric. Thank you, Dukani. Firstly, it's a big honor to participate today, especially alongside Mr. Tanya Cole, who is just on fire. 
and Lena Wen, from whom we'll hear in a little bit. Just a little bit more about my background. I've worked in philanthropy a long time, mostly on education, civic engagement, and for the last seven years on tech inclusion. I've been able to collaborate with the players, big and small, a lot on the local level, but also the Obama White House Office of Science and Tech Policy. We had an ongoing collaboration with Google and with Afrotech, which is the largest conference of African-descended people in the tech industry with about 10,000 attendees. So I've had a range of experiences. I love this concept here of bringing together leaders as fellows in some of the globe's most prestigious and far-reaching fellowship programs in order to build community, to exchange ideas, and to get inspired about next step and next level work. So thanks to the Atlantic Institute for assembling us, and thanks to everyone for attending. Finally, we've been given a lot to chew on when considering reimagining a new world, how leadership has or has not built global solidarity, and what makes for good leadership in troubled times. And I think that these three questions are definitely interrelated. So I want to start with imagining because I think that that helps us to set sights on what might be possible, not what the picture is now, not strategies for fighting current enemies, but instead tethering our actions to the aspirational and moving in that direction. So let me start with the practical imagining. I imagine a world in which if capitalism must exist, there's a safety net for everyone who lives under its umbrella, so that the most vulnerable are actually not that vulnerable because everybody has basic needs met, suitable food, shelter, healthcare, et cetera. I imagine a post-COVID world in which global networks, United Nations included, are valorized and strengthened because of their critical efforts to craft a global vision and a global strategy to truly fight the global scourges of poverty and racism and climate change, among other things. I imagine a world in which people, after craving in-the-flesh interactions with one another, after being sheltered in place, after braving possible exposure to the virus in order to care for others, and after slaving at home to manage kids who are learning remotely while you're (laughs) carrying out your own work, after all this, that people go on to cherish shared public spaces, institutions, and communities with renewed vigor, and that we're able to build stronger commitments to the greater good. So in other words, we make actionable all these lessons that we've been learning, that there's no going back to business as usual that has left us flat-footed and susceptible to the tragic death and destruction in the wake of the pandemic. I realize that imagining can be fraught with challenges, especially in securing the political will to do these things. But what is great leadership but taking what was unthinkable before a reimagining and bringing it to life, perhaps over years and struggles and tears and sometimes, unfortunately, bloodshed, but ultimately ushering in a new era. And I'm sure that all of us on this call can cite examples of what great leadership has looked like to us. What is great leadership in troubled and uncertain times? It's stuff we already know. It's being afraid, but not caving into that fear. It's getting clear about what we need to do in this moment. It's pushing beyond our comfort zones to learn and to lend a hand. 
It's keeping an eye on equitable access for everyone to our basic needs. It's investing great faith in science and better practicing the science of faith. It's learning from the experiences of our neighbors and together creating a plan of action. Coming from the tech sector, as I do, I believe that there are some lessons on leadership that I can embrace because not all tech dynamics are good ones. The power to think big and make impact at scale, to work in a quick and nimble fashion, to experiment and make little adjustments as you go along, and moreover, to empower the end user. So these are my opening thoughts, and there's a lot for us to consider and chew on. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cedric. That was also a really wonderful way to set us up. The idea of practical imagining, I'm sure, resonates with all of us. We need to be able to have the vision as leaders, as you mentioned, Cedric, to imagine what is otherwise not possible and make that real. So I'd like to invite our third panelist, Lena. Dr. Lena Wen, thank you so much for being here with us. Dr. Lena Wen is an emergency physician and visiting professor of health policy and management at the George Washington University's Milken School of Public Health, where she is also the first distinguished fellow at the Fitzhugh Mellon Institute for Health Workforce Equity. And I'd like to just take this moment to acknowledge the recent passing of Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen, who was also the executive director of the Atlantic Fellows for Health Equity Global out of George Washington University, to honour his enormous contributions to his field in his pursuit of health equity, a legacy that undoubtedly continues to grow in the work of those who were mentored and inspired by him. Dr. Wen is a frequent guest commentator on the COVID-19 crisis for CNN, MSNBC and BBC. She is an expert in emergency preparedness and previously served as Baltimore's health commissioner. Dr. Wen, please, I invite you to make your opening remarks. Thank you very much. And thanks for the opportunity to be here. One of the parts of the bio that I want to add is also my close ties with both the Rhodes Trust and the Atlantic Fellows. I was a Rhodes Scholar and also now have the opportunity to work with the Fellows Program at George Washington University. So I was reflecting on the theme about what has COVID-19 taught us about leadership and solidarity in this time of crisis in particular because yesterday I had the honor of keynoting a conference for emergency physicians. I said at this keynote that I have never been prouder to be an emergency physician. I've never been prouder to be a public health provider. And these two fields, in fact, are intersecting at this time. And so I wanted to give you my thoughts, three lessons, if you will, at this intersection of emergency medicine and public health as we go through these times. The first thought is that what we do in these fields is that we act now. We don't wait while we constantly reevaluate and improve. In emergency medicine, waiting is not an option. A patient comes to us in extremis and yes, we may want more information. And yes, in the ideal world, we wait for all that information to come in before we act, but that is not an option for us where the patient is dying in front of us. We do the best we can with the information that we have. Hindsight is twenty twenty. You can always look back and say, you should have done something different, but that is not the nature of our field. And I say that because that's the corollary that I see in the COVID-19 crisis too. There is new information coming out about this disease every day. The best thing that we can do is respond with the best information, the best science that we have. 
but be willing to constantly reevaluate because that reevaluation is the bedrock of a solid public health response. It's responding in the moment, but then constantly reevaluating given the new information that we have. And we've seen this multiple times. We've seen, for example, that new treatments are coming out that lie a patient prone and not intubating immediately, even if there are low oxygen saturations, even something that's that nitty gritty, but so important. That's one of the lessons that we've drawn from this. And in the public health world, it's also so critical. In public health, we often talked about the social determinants of health, that there are multiple factors that influence how long, how well someone lives. And I think so often you can then default and say, well, if there are so many factors that influence a person's life, then where do we even begin? And then there's a tendency to admire the problem instead of doing something. Well, my lesson here is we cannot wait. We cannot let perfect be the enemy of the good. You cannot just be admiring the problem. Let's do something now, act now, while constantly reevaluating and improving as well. Second lesson, second thought is that we need to make the invisible visible. There's a saying that public health saved your life today, you just don't know it. That's because the work of public health so often is behind the scenes. By definition, you've succeeded when you prevented something bad from happening. So what is the face of prevention? Well, we are seeing now what happens in this pandemic when you do not invest in prevention, when you do not invest in public health, when you do not invest in those basic infrastructure that could have prevented this pandemic in the first place. That's how we got here. And I would say that the flip side of this is that now that we are here, people are talking about public health in a way that they have not for many, many years. And so we need to take advantage of this opportunity. And in these times of disinformation, our voice as professionals, as scientists is more important than ever because we have that opportunity to speak with clarity and purpose and urgency. The third lesson, third thought that I want to share with all of you is this idea of shared humanity in the times that we're in. Another part of my bio that I want to add is that I am a new mom. I have a two and a half year old, but I also recently gave birth. I have a five week old, actually soon to be six week old. I never imagined giving birth in the middle of a pandemic. Whoever thinks about that as a possibility. I went in for an induction and actually was told that the labor award was full. Come back tomorrow. <laughs> But it was because other people all had the same idea as me. We didn't want to wait until the hospital was too full to come and give birth. And thankfully, everybody is healthy, everybody is well. But I have to tell you that birth experience was very strange. My nurse was wearing a mask the whole time, as she should in these times. Childbirth, you all know, is one of the most intimate experiences. And I went through this very intimate experience with this woman whose face I never saw once. And she and I were joking that we might pass each other in the grocery store one day when we can give hugs again. And the strange woman will come up to me to give me a hug and I will be like, who are you? <laughs> and it's because we went through this whole experience like that. At some point when I was in labor and delivering, I grabbed her hand. And then my first thought was, oh my goodness, what if she has COVID and doesn't know it? And then my next thought was, what if I have COVID and I'm an asymptomatic carrier and I could be giving this disease to her? Who thinks about this in the middle of giving birth? <laughs> this is the kind of worry that we never could have imagined. And I say all of this because our humanity is being challenged in a very different way than it ever has been. The sense of connection and connectedness, we are feeling in a way that we really 
should, but I think we're paying attention to it in a way that we might not have been attentive to before. Yesterday, when I was speaking to these emergency physicians, and I'll leave you with this, one of the things that really broke my heart about what it was like to deliver care during these times, that one after the other person was telling me the most heartbreaking thing they have to do is to hold up a phone and dial a loved one for them to say goodbye. Because visitors are not allowed, as you know, to be with somebody at the end of life for fear of spreading this illness. We just passed Mother's Day. My mother passed away about 10 years ago from metastatic cancer. And I just cannot imagine what it would have been like to not have those final moments with her. So I think in these times, our humanity is being challenged. Our sense of connectedness is being challenged. But I think that's why we have to act even more so to give each other grace to act with kindness and compassion in a way that we might not imagine before too. Thank you so much, Dr. Wen, for those truly thought-provoking words. As a physician in public health, you're right, we're all talking about appreciating public health and our physicians, doctors and nurses so much more as we should. And what really stood out for me as you were speaking is the fact that sometimes we have to act on incomplete information. And that's definitely what's happening now during this crisis, during the pandemic. And to not let perfect be the enemy of good, I think that's a really profound lesson for us to carry through to our own leadership endeavours. Brazilian educator and philosopher Paulo Freire, who advocated for social justice in theories of knowledge, said, liberation is thus a childbirth and a painful one. And I just want to close with a few words. We cannot reject the pain and the complexity and the paradoxes embedded in the human condition and the challenges that we face. I think instead we must look right at it and make a choice to stare at it and to endeavour to be emancipated all the same. Our path to truly exist, to generate our own sentiment rather than to exist only in opposition to, depends on the birth of this something new. I'll pass over to Rodolfo Lara, the Director for Global Engagement at the Rhodes Trust, to bring us to an official close. Thank you. Thank you very much for that wonderful moderation. And thanks, everybody, for participating. Next week, 21st of May, we will have a webinar on displacement, lockdown when you have no home. So thank you to our speakers, Dr. Lina Wen, Tony Cole, and Cedric Brown for being such thought-provoking participants today. Bye-bye.